0: listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. If you're like me, you've been feeling pretty doom and gloom about climate change over the last several years. This year has been no different, even with the competing concerns of the pandemic. So far, we've seen fires ravage Greece, air quality continue to decline, and record heat waves bake the U.S., The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change confirmed some of our worst fears in the first part of their sixth assessment report. In fact, the findings of that report had officials declaring a code red for humanity. As we wade through some of the IPCC's findings and look toward the future of addressing climate change on a global scale, we turn to Colin Hendricks, professor in the Corbell School of International Studies and senior research advisor at the Center for Climate and Security. He shares with us his key takeaways from the report, what they mean for people today, and why he still holds out hope can you share with us what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change actually is, and why we might or should trust them as a resource on climate change?
1: So the IPCC was founded way back in 1988 as a body within the United Nations system that's responsible for providing governments at all levels, and therefore, by extension, companies and communities um, and other types of organizations with scientific information about climate change that they can use to develop climate policies. It has 195 country members, but the IPCC is really, I think, more a process than it is an organization. It's a process for establishing scientific consensus, a process that consists of thousands of experts from all over the world, including climatologists, hydrologists, physicists, engineers, social scientists, pretty much every subset of science nerd you can imagine. And those scientists are split into teams of experts who review thousands, over 14,000 this time around to be more precise, write studies that assess and consolidate what we know about climate change. uh, Its extent, what's driving it, its effects for natural and human systems, and what we think we know about attempts to mitigate climate change uh, and adapt to its effects. Um, It's really not a stretch to say that this is the most widely vetted and strongly vetted scientific document on earth. It's highly, highly credible, and it's all volunteer-based. No one's getting rich off of the work on this.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I I didn't know all of those details of it. I've certainly learned a little bit about it, but it definitely lends some credibility to know how many people are working on this and that it's not they're not making money off of it. I think that's such an important point.
1: No, no. I mean, it you will you would be amazed at the dedication and the incredible numbers of hours uh, that 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 scientists from all over the world uh, are dedicating and have dedicated to try and pe- to paint a full picture of the extent of climate change and its effects for all of us um, in over the past several years.
0: Yeah, and can I ask real quick, um, how long does it take for them to prepare uh, th- these reports?
1: Well, um, I guess it's a little bit like Santa Claus, you know, Santa Claus <laughs> delivers the presents and then starts making uh, the new toys the day after, right? Um, you know, the last IPCC report uh, or synthesis report came out in 2014, and work for this report began way back in 2015. Um, so this is the end of a five, uh, now six-year process.
0: Wow. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released part of its sixth assessment um, with the most up-to-date information that we have on climate change, as you mentioned. So as somebody who studies climate change, was there anything in that report that you found particularly surprising or that was really sort of the key takeaways for you?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, Well, you know, just first, the overall picture is extremely alarming. Uh, The changes that we are experiencing right now are of a magnitude that really hasn't occurred in hundreds or thousands or even in some instances Millions of years. Uh, The last time atmospheric carbon was at our current level, like the level we're at now, was well over 2 million years ago. This is the time of the first humans on Earth. So we're talking about, you know, way, way far before the dawn of what we now call civilization. Um, You know, in terms of my biggest takeaways, I'd say that one of them is that the 1.5 degree warming target, which was outlined in the IPCC special report published just a couple of years ago, is just not going to be met. Um, the emissions reductions that would be necessary to hit that target just aren't going to be feasible. Uh, And a lot of bad things start happening at 1.5 degrees, uh, from increasingly frequent storms and coastal flooding to mass extinctions of plant and animal life. Um, I think that one of the most shocking kind of findings regards sea level rise. Uh, The report indicates that sea levels will rise six to 10 feet, even capping emissions at the 1.5 degree level. All right, so if if we were incredibly successful at mitigating climate change from here forward, that's still going to happen. And by the end of the century, there's actually a remote chance that sea level rise could be up to 30 feet on average globally. Uh, that's, an, that's an amazing number. Um, even 10 feet of rise, you know, huge populated areas like Miami, large parts of New Jersey, and even New York City would be massively inundated. And you know, the effects in other parts of the world, like in China and South and Southeast Asia, uh, would be even more extreme. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that this iteration of the report, right, the Working Group One assessment report, only covers the physical science. That is the changes in climate and the environment um, that they're coming down the pike. It doesn't get into the human impacts, which are the subject of the second working group's report and which I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Those are some pretty bleak figures for sure. Um, and as you mentioned that the report notes that there has been a rise in extreme events since the 1950s. And we've certainly felt that, I mean, for the last several years, but certainly this year with the fires that we've seen in Greece, Denver's declining air quality, um, what does an increase in these events mean in terms of development, um, especially for countries that have fewer resources or lack the, the kind of robust infrastructure that we have here?
1: You know, um, unfortunately, I'd say that the effects are pretty much uniformly terrible. Um, you know, here in the United States, as you point out, we see the negative impacts of things like heat waves and fires and droughts uh, that, that they're having on our economy and on our well-being. Um, And we live in one of the most advanced economies on Earth. And our infrastructure, for all its faults, is miles ahead of where many parts of the world are. Um, I like to say that we live largely climate-controlled lives. Um, And for people in much of the developing uh, and even middle-income world, be they farmers or fishers or herders or things like that, the environment is, in fact, the key determinant of their livelihood security. They do not lead climate-controlled lives. So promoting resilience and adaptability there will have to be really key. Um, Because, you know, the purely economic forecasts are very grim. So very credible reports uh, coming out of Stanford, uh, for instance, suggest that many countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America could see their economic output cut in half by the year 2100. Um, Again, that's a staggering figure. uh, But it really masks sort of the the human suffering and the lack of human development um, and, and progress in addressing things like hunger uh, and infant and child mortality that would come from such significant economic contractions. Uh, I tend to think like a political economist, so I tend to throw out numbers uh, related to GDP and whatnot, but it's important for us always to keep in mind that when we see those numbers on the page, those actually reflect real changes. And in this case, unfortunately, negative changes uh, in, the, in the lives of, of many people the world over.
0: I think that focus on the individual is is really important to keep in mind here and not to not to get lost in some of these figures and, and miss the human side behind it. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the outcomes of some of these these extreme weather events. If indeed we do see these extreme events continue, what are some of the likely outcomes for the global community? And, and do you expect to see things like increased conflict, increased migration? Um
1: Um, I do think we can expect a lot of upheaval of various kinds. Um, Before talking much about migration, I just want to establish the fact that most of the time, migration is one of the best adaptive strategies that we have for dealing with problems like climate change. And most of the time, migration occurs peacefully and builds resilience at the national and international level. So think about the role that, say, something like remittances um, from Central American migrants to the United States play, right? The money they send home. Place in keeping the Central American economies and those societies afloat. Um, but but climate change is going to increase the pace of migration, and in doing so, it may cause frictions, I think, within and between countries. Um, the kind of frictions that we see at the U.S.-Mexico border, and indeed the kind of frictions that exist uh, at the Mexican and Guatemalan border, um, those are likely to increase as the pace of human mobility increases. Um, and I do think that we can anticipate a future of more kind of you know, armed conflict related to climate change, you know, events like the Syrian civil war. So in in 2019, uh, myself and a group of about 12 or 13 other scientists published a piece in the journal Nature that was based on kind of expert assessments of both climate science and past patterns of armed conflict. And the conclusion that we came to as a group is that we would likely see by mid-century a five-fold increase in kind of the, um, in the level of climate related armed conflict under kind of a business as usual four degree warming scenario. And uh, that's a really significant change.
0: I have to tell you, my eyes are kind of popping out of my head throughout this conversation, just with these figures and and this information. Um, One thing I'm curious about is if you could kind of talk a little bit about the way that climate change influences conflict, because I feel like that's a connection not everybody draws.
1: No, that's, that's a great question, and, and, and this, is a, this is a link that's hard for lots of people to wrap their heads around, because what we know from, from kind of the best available kind of science on this subject is that climate change is typically not decisive in any given conflict. Um, rather, it sort of loads the dice a bit and makes conflict a little bit more likely in a lot of very kind of small ways across many, many, many conflicts. So the effect of, of climate change on armed conflict can be large in the aggregate, even if when you look around in the world, you don't tend to think that most of these conflicts you're looking at are, are generated by climate change. Climate change doesn't cause a lot of the conflicts you say. It makes uh, the conflicts you see more likely to happen and potentially worse. Now, even in circumstances where it seems like there's a pretty clear influence of climate change, um, like the, you know, the historic drought. Uh, that preceded the Syrian civil war, uh, it's it's really important to understand that that drought took place in a very specific kind of political and and economic and social context that was characterized by a very highly repressive government, uh, a high degree of exclusion of people from participation in government, and and basically from from receiving uh, benefits from the government, and under immense social strain uh, as a result of the Arab Spring that was going on around it. And so that that highlights that even in a context like syria which is which is widely cited as being the most disastrous kind of climate sparked conflict uh that we've seen at least in recent history uh there's more to the story and so our job as social scientists is to understand you know what are the specific kind of social and political and economic contexts in which uh, these conflicts are likely to occur Um, and it's in societies that are highly dependent on agriculture Um, have kind of exclusionary patterns of rule and political systems that don't uh, um, kind of force leaders to be responsive to the needs of the populace. Um, And also, unfortunately, in in countries where there's a high degree of of kind of social polarization.
0: So We've been talking a little bit about these human impacts of climate change and that is what the second part of this ipcc assessment will focus on and that's expected to come out later this year Um, so can you talk a little bit more about what you expect to see come out of that that report and what some of the findings you're you're going to be looking at might be
1: well i'm technically i'm not at liberty to say a whole lot about that because i'm a contributing author to to the working group 2 uh, report um, I can say that, that some of the topics we've already covered, you know, in, in terms of the effects of climate change for, say, uh, economic development and human development uh, and topics like, you know, threats to peace and stability uh, and, and, and human migration um, are likely to loom very large in, in, in that report. You will also see elements of that report that target specific sectors. Um, There'll be discussions of the energy sector, there will also be discussions of of kind of at the regional level um, to try and contextualize, you know, the differences in the way that say climate change will affect northern Europe versus the way it will affect southern Africa. Um, And that report really builds on the previous report because this is an interesting area of research insofar as the social scientists Have to use the climate scientists, right, the hard scientists or natural scientists' work as a key input to how we think about the world. Because their findings and the results of their, you know, kind of projections of what climate change impacts will be moving forward are the context in which we social scientists have to extrapolate, right, or imagine kind of different ways in which the world will develop. And there's a, there's a technically, there's a way of doing this now called the shared socioeconomic pathways, which are a set of different models for what future versions of the world will look like um, in terms of how much cooperation will we see in the international arena? Um, will we see you know convergence, i.e. a coming together of levels of development? Or will we see a highly unequal global society moving forward? All of these elements kind of combine uh, to shape the way that social scientists think about what our lives will be like in the future, and how we will be interacting with our environment in the future.
0: Interesting. So we talk about climate change a lot of times, and and in this conversation we have, as these horrible effects that might happen someday, or that are going to happen down the line. So from an international studies point of view, from the work that you have done, um, what are you seeing already?
1: Well, in short, someday is today. All right, we're we are seeing these impacts now. I'll just give you a couple of them. We're already seeing climate change contributing to global conflict, for example, the Syrian Civil War, which I just discussed. We're seeing increasing tensions between countries that share rivers, like the conflict between Egypt and Ethiopia over the Grand Renaissance Dam project. You know, We're seeing recession of Arctic sea ice, which is sparking kind of a, a, a competition between the United States and Russia and other countries like China for influence over the anticipated kind of shipping routes and economies that will emerge there and the natural resources that may lie under that ice sheet. Um, And we're also seeing increasing conflict over fisheries resources, which are critical for millions around the world and have been a significant source of international tensions in the past. And and many of the current hotspots for for maritime conflicts, so, so naval conflict like the South China Sea, Uh, are only, you know, kind of anticipated to see their fisheries resources decline even more, which is going to fuel competition over further dwindling resource bases.
0: Right. So the UN Secretary General kind of echoed what you just said, which is that someday is today um, when they said that this is a code red for humanity. So this isn't the first time that we've heard these dire warnings about climate change. Do you expect this one to get through to the international community in any way? And, And do you expect it to get through to the US leadership? Hmm.
1: Let me try and answer that by by saying at the outset that climate change is, is a type of problem that really strains the abilities of humans and therefore you know, our institutions and governments to kind of take decisive action. Um, you know, the, the metaphor I often use is that, that, that climate change doesn't most of the time present itself as the wolf at the door that's threatening to blow that your house down, right? What it presents itself as is like a problem like termites, right? So um, it presents itself as, a, as thousands or millions of little small problems that are accumulating um, that collectively can have a, a massive kind of impact. Um, and, you know, so I like to say that, you know, the, the wolf at the door um, presents a more clear and present danger, so to speak. Um, but, you know, the termites will also cause the roof to decay in. Um, And the problem is that human beings, for whatever reason, are not very good at anticipating or figuring out ways to concretize the way that they're going to deal with changes that occur drastically, right? And so to the extent that climate change begins manifesting itself as these extremely dramatic events, so you can think about kind of the flooding that we've seen in various places around the world or the wildfires we're seeing here in North America, to the extent that that continues, that's much more likely to catalyze kind of political action around it than sort of the slower incremental increases in temperature and kind of declines in rainfall levels and those kind of things, which tend to be kind of the bread and butter things that historically we've, we've thought about when we think about kind of global climate change. Um, thinking about the U.S. leadership more specifically, I do think that, that the Biden administration is probably the most climate forward uh, administration that we have had. Um, I can certainly say that it's the most climate forward uh, in terms of the way that uh, the Biden administration is directing the national security communities and the intelligence communities uh, to essentially catalog and try to better understand and therefore devise response strategies um, to this threat.
0: That's kind of another question that I have, which is how much power does the United States have in terms of leading the global efforts toward climate change or how much responsibility should the U.S. take?
1: Uh, the well uh, <laughs> those are two different questions so the United States has immense responsibility along with um, you know the economies of, of of Europe, the developed economies of East Asia uh, and to a lesser extent the economies of um, you know the former Soviet bloc uh, those countries essentially are responsible for about 70 percent of the emissions historic emissions that are in the atmosphere that are causing the warming so, Our obligation to do something about it and exert leadership um, is huge, Um, also because, you know, this is still one of the world's largest economies and it's the um, most powerful in military terms and economic terms, uh, democracy. Um, It should be leading the charge. Uh, The problem is that because of the disastrous climate record under the Trump administration, Uh, The the ability of the United States to do that is going to be contingent on the Biden administration being able to reestablish the credibility of the United States as a faithful actor in trying to combat global climate change. And also, you know, that the United States will will do its part. Um, A lot of people in the media have been pointing to the irony of the fact that uh, essentially the day uh, after uh, the IPCC report was released, Uh, The Biden administration, in fact, Joe Biden himself, called on OPEC countries, so these are oil-producing countries, uh, to increase the amount of oil that they were producing uh, in order to bring down energy prices. Well, at best, that's a mixed message we're sending.
0: I I also saw that news yesterday, and the irony of it was not lost on me either. Um, And I'd (laughs) like to to talk a little bit more about some of these, these things that countries are doing at the top levels of their governance um, to try and combat climate change. So various countries have made climate commitments, including the U.S., and efforts like the Paris Agreement exist to change the tides of climate change. So how effective are these international agreements? And are they enough at this point to avoid the bleak outlook that this report from the IPCC paints?
1: Uh, Unfortunately, no, they are not enough. Um, and, And that's in part because even if we shut off carbon emissions and methane emissions today. Um, the global climate is a little bit like a freight train. It takes a long time to kind of get moving, um, but it takes even longer to slow down, even after you back off the throttle. Um, so these, what you were referring to are these nationally determined contributions where, where countries come up with targets uh, for emissions reductions, which are usually expressed in terms of uh, a percentage of their current emissions, right? Um, those are those are certainly welcome, but in most instances, right, these are targets that don't have any solid roadmaps for getting to the required emissions cuts and energy savings that would make the targets achievable. Um, one way to think about it is, is like this, you know, it's all fine and well to say that I'm going to lose weight and get in shape by the end of the year, but if I don't actually start eating right and working out, it's a pretty empty pledge, right?
0: Yeah, uh, so... You know, part of the thing that makes this sound so scary is, is that, like you said, it's a freight train. It's, it's very hard to stop and what we're doing is not enough. So how likely do you think it is that this entire international community rallies together around this issue in a meaningful way in time? And have we seen the international community rally or come together in this way before that, that can give us some precedent?
1: Well, um, unfortunately, I think it feels like it's getting less likely, uh, at least in kind of the near term. Um, over the last, you know, basically decade or so, we've kind of returned to uh, an almost Cold War-like period of intense economic and diplomatic and military competition between the two countries, in this case China and the United States, that we would really need to act as one in galvanizing global collective action around this threat. Uh, if, if they can't get on the same page, um, it may all be for naught. Um, because if the largest players in uh, the mitigation problem or in addressing climate change uh, cannot get their act together, uh, no one else uh, will, because it wouldn't make sense for them to to essentially take all the pain of of making these kind of emissions cuts when it's really going to be a drop in the bucket in terms of the actual effect um, for mitigating uh, carbon dioxide buildup uh, in the atmosphere. so the closest comparison and the one that the people who do what I do for a living often point to, uh, the successful attempt at this was the efforts that, that existed in the 1980s that were to combat the growing hole in the ozone through banning of uh, chlorofluorocarbons, uh, like what are known as CFCs, um, like Freon, uh, which was used to be used in air conditioning and uh, refrigeration. That venture was actually pretty successful. But in those days, you know, most of the CFCs were being made and used by a very small subset of the globe, North America, Europe, and the developed economies of Asia. Um, the problem was solvable. There were substitute products that were available. I mean, we still have AC and refrigerators, right? Um, and the countries that were involved were on good diplomatic terms and wanted the same things. They all wanted to solve the problem. Uh, that's not necessarily the case with climate change. There are many, many more stakeholders. Many countries in the developing world, um, you know, and they have some some reason for arguing this, it's not an illegitimate argument, argue that they need to become developed or they need to become wealthier before they will worry about cleaning up their act, Um, especially given the fact that that's clearly what the advanced economies of the world did. Um, You know, In addition to that, you know, this isn't about changing a couple of industries like air conditioning or refrigeration. This is about transitioning our entire economies or energy systems and and ways of life uh, to conform with kind of less carbon intensive models. Um, This is not a problem for someone else to solve. Fundamentally, it is a problem that we all have to solve. And it starts with our own actions and our own behaviors. Uh, And given that there are over 7 billion of us running around, It's pretty difficult to coordinate all that activity.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, so given all of these bleak figures and conversation points that we've been hitting on, um, what keeps you working on this issue besides the deep need for the work like yours, is there some element of hope that, that keeps you going or that, that you could share with us?
1: Um, you know, we are living through one of the most consequential moments in the history of humanity's relationship with our planet. And, and sorry, Elon and Jeff, right? This is still the only planet that we have. And, and as you point out, the picture is often bleak, but you know, what else is there but to keep trying to understand our relationship with our environment and bend it uh, in a more sustainable direction, you know, not just for ourselves, but for our children and their children and so on. Uh, there really is no alternative. Having said that, you know, I do actually hold out some hope. Um, we've been through bad times before. We're living through one of those now. Uh, and we're still here because, frankly, we can take it and we can adapt and build new ways of living and doing. Uh, we need to find the will. Um, and maybe this is the code red that will help in finding that will.
0: For more of Colin Hendricks's climate expertise, visit our show notes at du.edu radioed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Alyssa Hurst, Radio Ed's executive producer and today's host. This is Radio Ed.